Hello and welcome to another edition of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chaffers. I'm very excited today to bring you an episode recorded not online, but on location. So we are standing at the entrance of the Molino del Silvano, which is the largest bakery at Ostia Antica. That's the ruins of an ancient town that was the port for Rome, down the Tiber River and on the coast. It was a day I'd been waiting for for at least two years to get the wonderful Farrell Monaco, known online as Tavola Mediterranea, to show me round Silvano's bakery. It was Farrell who successfully recreated the famous Roman bread known as Panis Quadratus, the round loaf that you can see in frescoes and, amazingly, has beautifully preserved specimens recovered from inside the ovens at Pompeii. Who better, then, to show me round this ancient bakery and tell me how it worked? It's it's massive, actually, and there's eight mills inside. And um, if you want to walk through, we can kind of talk our way through the production area, if you like. That's exactly what I want to do. Okay, so walking through the entrance, um, we're in a vacant space, which more or less would have most likely been a shop front. I don't see a counter, but it looks very similar to um, Pompeian bakeries, which also had sales kiosks at the front of the bakery. So they could be doing wholesale operations in the back, milling flour that could go to other bakeries that didn't have mills, for example. And then they could also be producing bread, which they did here because of the oven in the back, and selling it to the public. Silvano's bakery is right opposite the Orium, the big marketplace and storage area for many commodities, including grain. So the grain would come into Ostia Antica from the provinces, um, Alexandria, Sicily, for example, um, and would be redistributed here. So some of it would go upriver into the city. Some of it would be reassigned to go on to the military garrisons in you know various ends of the empire. And then some of it would be processed here for sale here. So the proximity of this particular bakery to the Aram is very telling that if you have that high volume of um, grain across the street and then eight mills there's a possibility that this bakery wasn't just baking bread. They were also just milling for the purposes of perhaps shipping flour into the city as well. So the mills, um, they're, they're kind of strange. There's, a, there's a, a big fixed rock, and sitting on top of it, there's a smaller rock which sort of fits. I mean, it's like there's a, a hemispherical um, protrusion on the lower, on the lower rock and, and holes through the top. So how does it work? David Peacock tells us that it's made of leucotite, and some of them are made out of other volcanic materials, but these ones are made out of leucotite, and they were quarried in Orvieto. And so you have the bottom piece... So hang on a minute. Hang on. Quarried in Orvieto, that's uh, about 100 kilometres away. They're getting the best material for the purpose. Yeah, and Pliny tells us that as well. He tells us that they were sourced in Bolsena, and that they were... Um, the best mills in the Mediterranean, and that some were so amazing that they could move of their own accord or with the power of the moon. So that tells you how amazing these beautiful structures are. 
the actual technology itself is stunning. They're massive. I mean, this one in front of us right here is almost as tall as you and I are. And so it's a two-piece technology. The bottom is called the Meta, and it's stationary and conical. The top, which is the rotating piece, is called the Catalyst, and it's shaped like an hourglass. And it has two large holes in the side, which a pole is fixed through that is then attached to um, the yoke of a horse or a, a mule, typically a mule. You would have one um, bakery laborer or slave um, who would, you know, whip the donkey to keep him walking around and rotating the mill, which was fed with a wooden hopper in the top, which is gone now, of course. And then the grain would be cracked against the two pieces of the mill and would come out the base into a catch basin, which of course is gone as well. So it was organic, probably a wooden catch basin. When it comes out of here into the catchment area at the base, is it fine enough to be considered flour at that point? That's the difficult question. We don't know. Because as experimental archaeologists, we haven't worked with this. We haven't worked with something um, that is porous like this. And so one of the things that I think about is okay if I was given an opportunity to work with this mill and you know under the superintendency with a team of archaeologists and we decided to run one kilogram of parched wheat through it right what would happen until we can do that we don't know the texture of the flour that's coming out we also don't know the grade of the mesh Right, that they would have used to sieve. They used baskets, they used woven horsehair. The mesh that they were using, we don't know how much of the grain, um, the bran was left, how much was um, put through. We don't know how many times in, for example, commercial bakery settings, how many times did they pass it through again? Were they in a hurry? Or did they do it three times to get a finer product? And then the last thing that I think about is, let's say... We've been using this mill for 20 years, okay? Because it's such a pocked material, very porous, good for cracking wheat, how much uh, wheat and flour actually gets clogged into the inside of this mill, which then creates a smoother interior. Uh, perhaps it lubricates the mill and lets it move better. Perhaps it also slows it down, right? And if it gets wet, what happens? So you're dealing with the inside of this, the grinding surface between the meta and the catalyst would have been different when it would have had, say, a decade's worth of compacted flour and bran shoved into all of these pocks, right? So this is a big question. We don't know the texture of the flour that they produced because we don't know what this does yet. And until we can work it for a year or so, that's when we'll be able to give a solid answer. Is that even on the cards? I certainly hope so, but I think that would take a fair amount of um, work and pleading. <laughs> um, you know, there's certainly enough mills uh, in the former empire to say experiment with one, perhaps even one of the small ones, but it would require the permission of um, Beni Culturali or the, the superintendents here at Ossia or Pompeii to actually give it a whirl. And you would also need donkey labor, right? I'm, I'm willing to volunteer to push this thing around. Someone's going to have to smack you, though, because it's going to be quite a hard, hard oh, job. Uh, there'll be others. Yeah, it's a hard job. <laughs> One day then, we may just possibly know 
whether those mills grind exceedingly fine. And there's a whole other story about how the mills were made and how they were shipped down from Orvieto. In the bakery, how were they maintained? And there are eight of them. These are one of the, 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 the Roman mysteries. They had the ability to accomplish so many amazing things, and this is one of them. I mean, just the ability to, to quarry this and to make this um, is brilliant. Transporting it? Whew, God only knows. But just think about this bakery now. Put yourself back into the production environment of the day. Think about the clopping of eight mule mules walking around these mills, right? The sound of their behinds getting whipped, right? And then you think about the heat that would be in here when there's a roof on this structure. The oven in the back is massive. It's the biggest one um, that, that, that there is in, in, bakery, in commercial bakeries in the Roman settings. Um, but the environment in here would have been noisy, busy, smoky, hot. Um, um, what are they using for 11? Do we know? Uh, yeah, well, there's several examples that Pliny speaks of. Um, the most prominent example, the one that we go on the most, is bread dough from the day before. And so when you consider, again, that there's no refrigeration, it's a humid environment, they are likely leaving a large mass. And if you think of the output, the possible output of this bakery and the size of that oven, they would have to be leaving quite a sizable mass of bread dough from the day before in one of these two large containers in the back, right, which are typically um, used for washing the grain, right, or they could be for storing grain as well. But you would have to leave a mass of starter somewhere the day before in order to pay it forward to produce the amount of bread that they're likely producing in this. Bakery. Okay, so, um, so we've got a starter, which we've left over from the day before, and we have to turn that into today's dough. So where does that take place? Okay, so... This bakery has an unusual setup. Um, at Pompeii, you'd be lucky to find one kneading machine, maybe two, um, in a bakery. Some of them don't even have them. Um, so you have to consider that in some cases, the breads were kneaded by hand. In the kneading room, which is a dedicated kneading room, which you don't see at Pompeii as well, which is amazing. You have one, two, three, four, five kneading machines. One looks like it was actually popped in here. So you see how the base... There's actually a space in um, the in walkway the, yeah. uh, in between the tiling stones where the kneading machines are sitting. That one looks like it's been dropped in. Yeah, it's sitting on top of the... Yeah, but it could be wrong. But, you know, let's say we got five kneading machines in here. That's a lot of dough on the go. It really is. Yeah, because, I mean, the inside of the kneading machine is a cylinder. It's, it's sort of the size of a, a small dustbin, small trash can. I, I can't really say how many liters it might be, but it's pretty big. Yeah, it's massive, actually. It's, um, what does that look like? It's hard to say. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of, it's um, a large, like a janitor's dustbin, like a, like a garbage can. It's I'm going to guess 50 liters, maybe more. Okay, so 50 liters, and then you've got five, five mils. So 150 liters is that right? Yeah, yeah. 150 liters of dough no, two, on the go? 250 liters. Well, we're only guessing here anyway. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of dough. A lot of dough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and how does a kneading machine work? So my understanding is that you've got a wooden peg 
a tall wooden peg that is fixed into the base of the cylinder. At the side, you have two holes that are pushed through where you would have, again, two stationary pegs of wood that would be put through it that act kind of like stationary paddles. And then the pole that is fixed into the base has a paddle fixed onto it at a right angle, which when you rotate that, paddles the dough and bounces it about against the two stationary pegs that are fixed into the side of the cylinder. So you move this thing around and eventually you have something akin to, you know, an, an early Roman, like a, like a KitchenAid or a bread paddling machine, like a, <laughs> a bread mixer. It has a similar setup. The dough gets paddled. Uh, and then eventually I would assume you would end up with a nice ball of firm dough. You say firm. I, w I was thinking maybe it would be more more hydrated, more liquid, no? No. The evidence that um, is visible from looking at the inside of the crumb of the bread at Pompeii. Now, this doesn't mean that here in Ostia they weren't making high hydration, fluffy, holy bread. At Pompeii, all of the bread specimens that have been found are low hydration. They're lightly leavened. You can see that there's leaven in the crumb. There are small little bubbles, but it had to be dense enough to make the impressions that the Panis quadratus is known for, the segmentation on top of it so that they could be broken apart and divided as portions. If the dough was high hydration, which some of the loaves may have been, you can't press anything mm -hmm. into it because, you know, as soon as it hits the oven, whew, yeah. everything gets blown back out, right? Of course, in a perfect world, Farrell would have shown me there and then how to make a perfect panis quadratus. But I'm going to have to do that on my own. The point is that the segments, which are very obvious in the specimens and the paintings, would vanish if the dough was well hydrated, contained a lot of water. In any case, behind the kneading room is a long, shallow space where the dough would be formed into loaves. A group of shirtless men that are working around a square table. Sometimes there's a foreman standing at the end telling them what to do. And then, of course, we know that, you know, they did it with their hands because there's evidence on a few of the loaves of Pompeii of fingerprints from these, these men, which to me was just magic. That was so moving to see evidence of these bakery laborers that nobody writes about, nobody talks about. Um, they're completely invisible in the archaeological record. And then when you see their hands, their fingerprints pushed into the bottoms of the loaf at the side of the loaf, it's like, ah, there they are. There they are. And it's so beautiful, you know? Yeah. It, 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 it's a connection. Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, to me, to look at evidence of their craftsmanship, their work, because they were typically, you know, from what we know, they were typically slaves or criminals. Um, but they were craftsmen. They had the ability to make these beautiful loaves that were complex and the forms are so unusual. And they had to use the tools that they had on hand to make this shape. They did it all day long. And they produced high volume of, of bread to feed Rome and they deserve recognition. The scale of the work with eight mills, five or six kneading machines, and then this long shaping room is quite overwhelming. And then, at the end of the shaping room, Farrell spotted something interesting. Stairs down to the oven. And yeah. you've got two windows here. Yep, there's your pass. 
You got you have a pass on the left and a pass on the right, which I didn't notice before, which is so beautiful. So logically, they could have been uh, working the dough here, rising it on the shelves. Turn around. Then they form it. Once it's risen, they form it because you can't you can't do the impressions and tie the cord around the diameter and then leave it sit, right? Because then you lose the impressions again. So impress and create and form the loaf. Turn around, squat, and hand the loaf to the oven master who's working on the other side of the wall, who is loading that massive oven with probably an incredibly long pallet. I mean, it's incredible. It's a room, uh, four meters by three meters, I would say. Is that whole thing the oven? So the floor is gone. I can see that somehow the basalt, um, the base has been looted or taken elsewhere. But the size of the oven is correct because the back wall is still there. Um, it's a lot of baking space. It's nearly twice the size of what you'd see at Pompeii, perhaps even three times. Um, that's a wood wood storage area in the bottom. And they would have filled it with wood, fired it, swept the embers out, and then fed the bread into the oven. And you would have probably had, it would have sustained maybe four hours of, of baking heat in the oven. And But the size of this oven floor, I would venture to say they were producing probably 200 loaves at a bake per bake in that oven yeah so this leads to the question why why is it so big if they are like ostia is not huge where's that bread going is it going up the river right why are they why is the oven so huge for ostia so you have a small resident population at Ostia, but then you have a, a transient population as well, which are the, the merchants and the, the guys that come in on the ships. But do they need this much bread? Because I ask myself this question, this is a high volume bakery. Why? Where's it all going? 200 loaves per bake. And then we're doing this on the fly. We're doing math on the fly right now, Jeremy, but 200 loaves per bake. And I'm speaking just about the Panis Quadratus, not any other typology they may have been making that we don't have evidence for. But think about where that's going if Ostia is the small town that it is. Up the river to Rome, down the river to military garrisons further afield. Who knows? But it's time to get to grips with the bread itself. You've mentioned, as we've been talking, you've mentioned this Panis Quadratus quite a few times. And I think I first learned about you through reading about your experiments with Panis Quadratus. So let's talk about that. What is Panis Quadratus? So it is the most recognized Roman bread typology in the archaeological record. Okay, and the reason why that is is because 81 of these loaves were preserved beautifully in the bakery of Modestus at Pompeii inside of the oven. Um, they're also visible, so we know they're prominent because they're visible um, in frescoes, they're visible um, in relief sculpture, funerary stella, um, relief sculpture, uh, like the Romolo relief, for example. You can see examples of this bread represented um, in Roman art. And then, of course, it's written about as well in the literary record. And uh, it is essentially a segmented bread. 
right? And so, but because of the examples that were excavated by Fiorelli in 1862, we can see uh, how prominent these were at Pompeii, for example, but we know that they were made in Rome as well. And the, the segmented, it's quadratus, it's divided, there's a sort of a cross on top. Yeah, so there's always a bit of debate about this, but it's it's either four, it's four movements of the chord, right, or the reed. So one, two, three, four makes eight, eight. segments, or the loaf is quadrated into quadrants into four, which is the other way that you see it, and sometimes in more domestic settings, is just one, two. And how did you go about baking Panis Quadratus? So I started years ago, just like everybody, you know, who's experimented with has, you start first by making a ton of mistakes and assumptions that that, um, you know, you realize as you go along, oh, that was wrong, this was wrong, um, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, um, until you get close to um, a product that is similar. When I went into the lab at the museum in Naples, I studied the form much closely, the crumb, etc. I looked at the impressions um, and got a much better idea as to how it was put together by these men who worked in this space and um, the hydration levels. Um, you can't tell much about the flower texture by looking at the crumb given the fact that it's carbonized so it's been compressed and it's been shrunken quite a fair bit. But in looking at it and as a baker and as someone that understands hydrations and bake times and temperatures and, and the behavior of bread both as dough and once it's in the oven I was able to get to a point where I could figure out okay the hydration needs to be this in order for the impressions to stay the impressions have to stay because the end user the consumer needs to be able to break the bread at those lines right and then I used various tools that I knew were around at the time and that were being used for utilitarian purposes in, in Pompeii and Roman settings uh, until I could come up with a reasonable facsimile. And that reasonable facsimile, I mean, that's, is that an example, would you say, of experimental archaeology? Does it tell you what the Romans did? Or is it an example of, what should we say, uh, making a facsimile that may or may not be the way the Romans made it? Yeah, I mean, there's some takes at it that are, you know, kind of like what you, what you see online is you see people kind of having a go at it and saying, look, I made the Panis Quadratus. And that's grand. That's fantastic. If they're interested and they're spending time reading about it and they're looking at the archaeology and the history, that makes me happy. But the experimental archaeologist's job is to narrow it down and get as close to um, producing a product that's as, as close to the original as possible, right? But you're doing this for various reasons. You're not doing it just because you want to produce a loaf that is exact. You're doing it because you want to understand the labor that's involved, what movements and techniques they used to make this loaf, um, how how much flour and water went into it because there there is a standard size right and then once you factor in the carbonization the margin you can actually look at kind of the standard size of the dough that they would have weighed to make these loaves because they would have weighed it out as well as a baked loaf and sold it by weight so it's about um 
the quantity of grain that's being fed to people. It's about craftsmanship. It's about tools of the trade. It's about the production space, like where they're working. Um, it tells us so much. Um, and then, of course, if you find fingerprints, you know, you get to you get to see the actual people that are involved in the process, you know. So, and then for me, it's the most beautiful aspect about remaking it is that it's, it is something that fed Rome. Some scholars believe that, you know, most of the daily calories came from carbohydrates, which came from cereal grains and, and breads. The fact that this bread is so prominent in the pictorial and archaeological record tells me that it's such a huge part of the Roman daily diet, along with other breads as well. But this was a large part of the Roman diet. And when you factor in how many bakeries are present at Pompeii, right? It's like Starbucks for you and I, or Pret-a-Manger, they're everywhere. And if this oven was full of 81 loaves, that the volume that they were producing at Pompeii with the 34 bakeries present in 49 acres of 66, so you know, 25 acres, sorry, hectares remain unexcavated. That's a lot of bread, right? Hectares, not acres. It's a lot of bread, and Pompeii's not even a big city. No. I mean, Rome at that time, I've read a million people. Yeah, 260 bakeries. There's only one that we know about, but I'm going to find another. No, there's, yeah, there's one, um, there's evidence of a bakery at the Porta Maggiore, right beside Urasaki's tomb, the baker's tomb. The Baker's Tomb is a bit of a landmark here in the middle of a tangle of tram lines and aqueducts at one of the high points in the city. And I really hope I'm around when, not if, Farrell Monaco does actually uncover that bakery, because I'm sure she will one day. Don't forget, you can read more about Roman bread at Farrell's website, tavolamediterranea.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes at my website, eatthispodcast.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at EatPodcast and on Instagram at EatThisPodcast. If I do attempt to bake a Panis Quadratus myself, that's where I'll be sharing the results. I've got one more episode for you this season before we take a little break over the holidays, and that'll be in a couple of weeks. Till then, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.